1 Kings. Um, actually, let's have a word of prayer, and then we'll open up our Bibles here, okay? Heavenly Father, thank you for this time together. Thank you for uh, everything you do for us every day, Lord. Thank you for the cross and for Jesus Christ and the blood he shed to pay for our sins, Father. Thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to speak to you tonight, Lord. Even open your word tonight, Father, for those watching here and those at home. Lord, I pray, Lord, you'd be a blessing to them, Father. Make the word just apply it to our hearts. Give us understanding, Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit. I acknowledge my dependence on you, Father. We think of these these needs here tonight, Lord. We think of um, my son CJ, Lord. Continue to strengthen him, heal him, Lord. Encourage him. Think of Nayeli, Father. Pray you continue to bless her and strengthen her. Help her mouth just kind of heal up, Father, that jaw situation. Uh, think of Angela, Father. No, Lord, she's in the hospital now for a month. Lord, the situation, we're not sure of it all, Father, but it doesn't sound great, Lord, but it doesn't really matter to you what it sounds like, Father. We just pray you'd have mercy, Lord, and just encourage her, strengthen her body. If it be your will, Father, just get her up out of that bed, Lord, and give her healing, Father. If not, Lord, just give us grace for whatever your will is, Father. And pray, Lord, for even our sister Kim, Lord, as she nears the delivery of of the baby, Lord. I pray you'd strengthen her body, Lord, and just uh, may it be the perfect timing, Father, Lord, and Mark, and Kim, just prepare their hearts, Lord, to be parents again, Father. Help them to be just good ministers, Lord, of your word to that little soul. Lord, we pray in advance, Father, for that little soul even to be saved, Lord, and live a life that would glorify you, Father. We ask that now and all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so we've been doing, just in case you're tuning in or visiting tonight, uh, we are been doing some questions and answers from the Bible. We had been going through a larger series on just some child training things from the Word of God, but we did a little detour to kind of answer some questions people had. And I'll get to, I got a whole bunch more. I don't know if I got some chicken scratch written down here, but I'm going to try to get to just at least one today, maybe two today. Depends on how much I blab on and on and on. But the question I want to start with tonight is, um, uh, how does the devil, or how can the devil, destroy a church? Right? And that, that's a pretty powerful question. How can the devil destroy a church? Uh, and we don't mean like uh, uh, a building. We mean like a group of believers that gather, because that's what a church is, right? I know we, we have this thought, right, that you walk through the steeple, and there's a big cross on the top, and that's a church. No, the church goes into the building, right? Anybody saved by Jesus Christ and has trusted Jesus Christ as Savior, that part makes you a part of the church, right? The church universal. And we're talking about how does the devil destroy a local church, right? How does he take a local group of believers like us? And there's a small sample of us here tonight, but you know, how does he kind of get in there and rip something like that apart? And I'm sure you have a million different ideas running through your mind. Uh, gossip, lies. I mean, there's so many different things that can happen that can get in there and just destroy a church. But I want to just kind of dwell on one general tactic of the enemy which is really just an ancient military tactic. It's not unique to church matters. It is the tactic of divide and conquer. You say, how can, how can the devil get in and destroy a church? Very, very simply. It's the oldest tactic in military history. Divide and conquer. And we're going to take a look at that tonight because that's how the devil has operated. That's how armies have operated. And that's what you have to be on guard against because that's how he's going to get in here and try to destroy this work, which is meant to bring God glory. So let's look at 1 Kings. Now, we're going to learn a lesson. Now, the Bible is a picture book. I don't have to invent what is going to happen in the future, because all I have to do to learn about the future is look to the past. 
The Bible says God requireth that which is past. He tells the end from the beginning. So if I want to know how the devil can get into something and divide and conquer it, all I have to do is look at what has happened in the past to some of God's, you know, entities that he's dealt with, specifically the nation of Israel, right? The book of Romans. Let's look at Rome. I have you in first Kings, but let's look at Romans chapter 15 just to launch off for it's a better launching off spot. Romans chapter 15 is a good spot to launch off from. Romans chapter 15. All right. Uh, Romans chapter 15, verse number four. All right. Romans chapter 15, verse number four. The Bible says, For whatsoever things were written aforetime in the Old Testament, previous times, were written for our learning that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. All right, so God says, I've given you some instructions from the past to help you learn about the future. Don't go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Let's look at that also, which is just the next book to the right. It's Bible study, so we flip it a lot of pages, a lot of verses. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, let's look at verse number 11. 1 Corinthians 10, 11, a good companion verse. Now he's speaking about Israel's failures here in verses uh, 1 to 10, and he says in verse 11, Now, all these things happened unto them, meaning Israel, for in samples, types, models, pictures, and they are written for our admonition, right? Our instruction, our uh, edification, upon whom the ends of the world are come. So if I want to learn how the devil can get into something and divide it and conquer it, I don't have to go through a lot of personal examples. I could just look back at the example of Israel. Because how did the devil destroy Israel? Very much how the devil destroys a church. He started that destruction by dividing and then conquering it. And once Israel was divided, it was easy pickings for the eventual destruction of the enemy. Let's look at it. Now over here, we've got a very, very kind of crude kind of graph of like the, the nation of Israel. Some things about the nation of Israel. We've got... Uh, In the book of Genesis, we've got really the formation. From Genesis really into Exodus, we've got the formation of the nation of Israel, right? We've got especially chapters 12 to 50, right? We've got the patriarchs. We've got Abraham. We've got Isaac. We've got Jacob. We've got Joseph. And God is starting to form a people, right? He calls a person named Abraham. Out of all the idolatrous pagan nations around him, he grabs this person, Abram the Hebrew, and he calls him out and he starts forming a people. And then we know that people ends up in Egypt, right? They end up in Egypt for 430 years. 400 of those years, they're actually slaves of Pharaoh and in bondage. And in Exodus, right, which you see exit, express yourself, excite. The book of Exodus means a calling out. Like there is an exit sign. You get out of this room. The book of Exodus is God now calling out a people out of the world to himself. And they go on right into Joshua and Judges, and they begin to form and get the land. And really the next major stop on Israel's development is when we start to get to 1 Samuel, where we start to see the establishment of the nation of Israel. Because what do they get in 1 Samuel? That's where they get a king. And we know the Old Testament is really about God forming a kingdom, a literal 
kingdom of heaven, a physical kingdom on the earth that you could see with a capital in Jerusalem. And so by 1 Samuel, we start to see that established. And then we have right here, David, really the greatest king of Israel, is kind of like headed towards the apex of this chart. And then Solomon is starting to be the downslide of this chart because under King David was really this glorious, glorious kingdom. And Solomon also, Solomon was given that rest, but Solomon starts to initiate that slide and that demise of the nation of Israel and the eventual destruction of the nation of Israel in 2 Chronicles 36 and I think 2 Kings chapter 17 when the nation is eventually carried away into captivity. That would be their destruction. But you see here a simple, very crude, please, this is not like drawn to scale, but a very crude kind of chart how Israel the nation developed. But I want you to notice, let's go to 1 Kings now, that their destruction really was initiated when they began to be divided. And we're talking about how the devil can destroy a church. And we're saying here, for those of you that just walked in, it's really about dividing and conquering. And let's look at 1 Kings chapter 11. All right, let's go back to 1 Kings. All right, 1 Kings 11. 1 Kings 11 there. Okie dokie, 1 Kings. Now, 1 Kings, if you look at something very interesting, um, our old King Solomon, he's a tough type. Because he's a type of Jesus Christ in the millennium. He's also a type of Antichrist. He's the only person in the Bible that's probably a type of Christ and Antichrist. Because in the days to come, coming soon to a city near you, there's going to be this figure called the Antichrist that's going to seem so close to the real thing, unless your heart is glued to that Bible, you will be deceived. And if that scares you a little bit, It should, because the Bible talks about this kind of reign of terror that he's bringing on the earth. And you're starting to see the birth pangs of that now, the tyranny, the oppression. It's just like the beginning of sorrows, possibly. But if you look at 1 Kings chapter 10, actually, and look at verse number 14, Solomon is reigning. He's doing great. Sheba's coming to see him. The whole world is coming to worship him. I mean, he really is a picture of Jesus Christ in the millennium. No wars. He was a man of rest, just like the millennium is going to be a thousand years years of rest and peace on earth. But do you notice in 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 14, how much money he gets? It says, now the weight of gold that came to Solomon in one year was 603 score and six talents of gold. You know what that number is, right? 666. Solomon was never the same after that 666. And right after that, you see it start to turn. And 666 is never a good number in the Bible. You don't have to even be an expert about that. You know, I'm so weird about that number. <laughs> My wife's going to laugh at me. I was, so, was going to buy something on Amazon today. I was going to buy that tape, Josh, and it was 6.66 like, feet or something like that. I was like, I can't do it. I cannot. I can't do it. I just said, I, I know there's nothing wrong with it, but I can't do it. Just that number gives me the willies. So, but 606 scores, 666 talents of gold, and then you start to see Solomon slide. And God makes Solomon all these great promises, like he makes you great promises. But look at the first word in chapter 11, verse 1. What's the first word? But... <laughs> Oh my goodness, our butts really stink to join up, don't they? He's telling them, you could have all the earth, you're going to have all this, you're going to have all that, you're going to have this, you're going to have that, God's going to bless you. He says, you're going to have all this goodness, but, but, King Solomon loved many strange women. That doesn't mean they had like funny looking faces or three legs or anything like that. They meant they were not from the nation of Israel. They were foreign women with foreign gods. And it says, but King Solomon loved many strange women together with the daughter of Pharaoh, 
women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Zidonians, and Hittites, of the nations concerning which the Lord said unto the children of Israel, You shall not go into them, neither shall they come in unto you, for surely, I mean, God's saying you can make a bet, they will turn away your heart after their gods, lowercase g. Solomon clave unto these in love, verse 3, and he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, that is a lot of anniversaries to remember, and his wives turned away his heart. For it came to pass when Solomon was old that his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not perfect with the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his uh, his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Zidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the uh, Ammonites. And Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord, and went not fully after the Lord, as did David his father. So you see the downturn? I mean, there is a great practical lesson in there. Because you mess with people that God says not to mess with, you know what they're going to do? They're going to turn away your heart. I mean, nobody's going to beat it. Solomon was the wisest man that ever lived, and he couldn't beat it. So you start rolling with the wrong people, guess what? I know you think you're going to be okay. I know you think it's a little of this and a little of that, but take a lesson from Solomon. Now, if you go down in chapter 30, verse 31 and 32 of that chapter, you start to see God makes a prophecy, right? And I'm not going to read it all, but God prophesies that the kingdom is now going to split. You're going to have 10 tribes are going to become the northern kingdom, which is what we would call Israel proper, sometimes called Ephraim in the Old Testament. And you're going to have two tribes would make up the southern kingdom, which is often called now the nation of Judah. Right? The ten tribes would initially get governed by Jeroboam, who was one of um, Solomon's industrious young men, one of his warriors and workmen, and the southern kingdom would get governed by Solomon's son, Rehoboam, who even Solomon said was a fool. And that is the big split. The northern kingdom stunk. I mean, they had a bunch of kings. None of them were good. They are carried away by the Assyrians. I mean, history dates it as 721 B.C., that's history's date. They go into Assyrian captivity. They're done. God's done with them. And around 606 B.C., again, that's history's dates. I know they're probably wrong, but that's historians dated. That's when Nebuchadnezzar starts marching in and destroying the southern kingdom. But you see where it started? It started when they split. And that's really the thing, that that split, and in, verse, in chapters 12 and 13 of 1 Kings is where you see the actual split. I just want you to notice that that split, that division, was the beginning of the end for the nation of Israel. Oh, they lasted a little while longer, but that's where, they, that's where it started to all fall apart. And what is the instruction we take now? Now go to with me to the book of Romans, please. That is very, very instructive to me. Because you see, how could the devil destroy a church? You know where it's going to start? Where he starts working some division into the congregation. Where he starts splitting people up and start creating factions and cliques and sides and animosities towards each other. That's where old Splitfoot gets his foot in the door and he puts those divisions in here and you rest assured there's going to be problems down the road. That's why for the church... For the body of Christ that we're supposed to be a part of, unity is such an important thing. 
Unity is such an important thing in the church. You say, what is unity? Unity is the state of being one. I don't mean like a cult, like, eh, take me to your leader, where's the Kool-Aid? I don't mean like that, all right? We do that stuff after church. But I mean just having some type of agreement about things, right? Just having some concord about things. You know what it has to do with? It has to do with having the same mind about certain things. Now, you might like the Yankees. You might like the Mets. If you like the Mets, I'll pray for you. That's okay. Uh, you might like the Yankees. That's all right, too. But hey, um, I got the pulpit tonight. I'm sorry. But whoever, that, I'm not saying we all got to like, you know, cheeseburgers and fries like any other, you know, God-fearing American. But we have to have the same mind about certain, if you're a vegetarian at home, I'm sorry. I eat tofu with the best of them. But I want to show you Romans chapter 15, what God's saying about, uh, about the same mind about just having the same mind towards some things. Let me, let me just look at Romans chapter 15. Romans chapter 15, look at verse number 5, please. The same mind that the Lord wants us to have. Romans chapter 15, verse 5. Now the God of patience and consolation grants you to be like-minded. God wants you to be like-minded. Um one toward another, according to Christ Jesus, that ye may with one mind and one mouth glorify God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know what I see, number one, about having a a like mind, brethren? You know what it does? It gives God glory. It's for the glory of God that we're trying to have. We're supposed to put our differences aside, our petty things aside, and try to bring God some glory by having a similar mind about the things of God. That's number one. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 13 about being like-minded. The same mind. 2 Corinthians 13. Again, this is aimed at Christians. If you're watching from home tonight and you don't think you're a Christian, just listen and I'll plug you in somewhere too. But I'm just trying to get you something to see that the the church is supposed to have one mind, one mouth to glorify God. We're not supposed to be telling different stories about each other or saying different messages about the Bible. We're supposed to have some harmony in here, unlike the world that wants to bite and devour each other. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 11, the Lord says this, Finally, brethren, now remember the Corinthian church was a divisive church. They were a schism church. They were full of divisions and cliques. One clique was the Paul clique. There was the Apollos clique. There was all different cliques in that church. They were attacking each other. And now he gets to the end of the second letter to the Corinthians and he says, Hey, farewell. Be perfect or mature. Be of good comfort. Be of one mind. Right? And the God, live in peace. And the God of love and peace shall be with you. You know the second reason why unity is so important? It's for the brethren's peace. The Bible says, be at peace among yourselves, 1 Thessalonians 5.13. We're supposed to not have fightings and divisions and, and all that stuff in here. The Bible says that's how people in the world are. He said in 1 Corinthians 3, For whereas there are divisions among you, are ye not carnal and walk as men? It's not supposed to be so among you. We're supposed to live in harmony, live in peace, and the God of peace shall be with you. So the second thing I see what makes uh, unity so important is it's supposed to be a peaceful place, church. The fellowship should have some peace to it. Go to uh, Philippians 1. And here's another reason why. Can I erase this? Can I I get rid of this? All right, great. Another reason for uh, unity, right? Go down to Philippians chapter 1, look at verse 27. Philippians 1, 27. All right, Philippians 1, 27. 
Philippians 1.27 says, Only let your conversation, that's everything you do and say, only let your conversation be, uh, be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that ye stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Paul says, hey guys, if you're saved, let's get together on some things. Why? So we can get this gospel across, get this faith across in the right way. What does unity also help there? The work of the gospel. (laughs) So I see three things about unity that are really important. The glory of God, that's first, Romans. The brethren's peace, that's second, that's second Corinthians. And the gospel work, that's Philippians. Now, it's interesting that word unity. Unity only appears three times in your Bible. That word unity only appears three times. Let's look at those three times because it's going to learn us something really good right now. That similar mind, that one mind. Let's go to Psalm 133 and let's look at the first mention of unity. Psalm, and a lot of you know this verse already, Psalm 133. Psalm 133, Psalm 133, look at verse number 1, Psalm 133, look at verse number 1, all right? Number 1, here it is, ready? Say amen whenever you want. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. You know what I noticed first? The first mention of the word unity applies to brethren. You know, brethren are supposed to dwell in unity. If we are saved and we're in the same family, we're supposed to be of one mind and one mouth. Amen on that? You got that? Amen? It's, isn't it good and pleasant when brethren dwell together in unity? when we're of one mind and one mouth. Wouldn't it be hard? Like last Saturday, we went down to Barnegat. We went to go, we had 20 of us or so, 22 of us, I think, went down to Barnegat to bring the gospel down to Southern Jersey where Mary lives over there. And you know what? We had, we had some unity there. We were all on the same page. We weren't fighting with each other. It was a blessing. We weren't really, you know, we might have said, should we go left? Should we go right? But at the end of the day, we were there for one reason, to get the gospel onto these homes. And you know what? We did it well. We had a great time. We ate together. We fellowshiped together. And you could sit back and say how good and how pleasant it was for brethren to dwell together in unity. God's brethren are supposed to be in unity. We're not supposed to be divided. We're not supposed to allow divisions into the church. The Bible calls those things works of the flesh. We're not supposed to let that in. Now go to Genesis chapter 13. Let me show you the opposite of that good and pleasant. I was going to say good and plenty, but that's a candy, right? (laughs) Let me ask you, are you saved? Okay, okay, okay. So that means you're, you're brethren, right? You know, but the opposite, the opposite of unity would be strife. Strife, and strife is never a good thing in your Bible. Look at Genesis chapter 13. In Genesis chapter 13, interesting number. In Genesis chapter 13, Abram and Lot, who were family, are venturing on. And you know what? Lot's got his eyes towards Sodom. And Lot's, you know, he's Lot's a little bit messed up, I know. And Abram's a pretty spiritual dude. And you know what Abram says right there? They're getting like a little strife over their cattle. You know, who's going to get the little grassy knoll over here, the, you know, to eat over here? There's a little strife about the cattle. And in Genesis chapter 13, verse 8, it says, let's take it from verse 7. And there was strife between the herdmen of Abram's cattle and the herdmen of Lot's cattle. And the Canaanite and the Perizzite dwelled then in the land. 
There's always strife among brethren when you're fighting about stuff. I'll just end in verse 8. And Abram said unto Lot, Let there be no strife, I pray thee, between me and thee, and between my herdmen and thy herdmen, for we be brethren. Right? The first mention of unity has to do with brethren dwelling together. And the spiritual man, Abram, says, if we're brethren, there should be no strife. And brethren, if there's strife among the body today, you know what you need to do? You need to put it under the blood. And one of you has to be big enough to say, let's just squash this. Let's just end this. Let's just put the fire out right now. Because you let that thing ferment. You let that division widen. It's like a crack in your driveway. You got a crack in your driveway and you don't seal it and you don't fill it and you don't put it back together again. The water, the elements, the cold are going to get in there and get under there and expand and then just bust that whole patio up, bust that whole asphalt driveway up until you have to rip the whole thing out and start over. Am I preaching to anybody? That makes a lot of sense to me. I got a, I got a driveway with cracks in it. You know what? If we're brethren, if there's cracks in the foundation, if there's little divisions, if there's little animosities, if there's little whatevers, you know what you got to do? If you're spiritual like Abram, you got to say, there really shouldn't be any strife here. Let me squash it. Let me end it. Because we're supposed to be brethren dwelling together in unity. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 4. Let's look at the second mention of unity. Again, to learn your Bible, just, just follow the words, right? Just follow the words. Ephesians chapter 4, now we jump. We jump about a thousand years, right? We went from Psalms 133 to Ephesians chapter 4. And now Paul, in the first century, is sitting in a jail cell, and he's writing the book of Ephesians. And he's writing the book of Ephesians all about the body of Christ. And if you want to learn about the church proper, the church universal, that spiritual organism that Jesus Christ made you a part of, turn to the book of Ephesians. And in the first three chapters of Ephesians, it's all spiritual. It's all your standing. It's all about these great mysteries and these great truths that God wants to give you. And then you get to chapter 4, and it starts to become about your walk. It stops being heavenly, it starts being earthly. It stops being doctrinal, and it starts being practical. And in Ephesians 4, Paul gets real practical. And the first practical thing he deals with is unity in the church. Not the body of Christ, but your local churches where you assemble together with other sinners that smell just like you. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. I therefore, because of all the things he said in chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, about the inheritance, about the standing, about the mystery, about all those great truths that you just learned, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord... Not the Romans, the Lord, right? Beseech you that ye walk, because chapter 4, 5, and 6 are about your walk. Not your way, but your walk. Walk worthy of the vocation. That's your station in life, your vocation wherewith ye are called. With all lowliness and meekness, with long suffering, forbearing one another in love. Now watch verse 3. Endeavoring, trying striving, working to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. I please want you to notice, my dear brethren and my folks at home, that when we get to chapter 4 and we start to talk about unity in our earthly walk, he talks about endeavoring to do it. That means on earth, it's going to take work to maintain unity. Naturally, 
we're going to bite and devour each other. Naturally, we're going to get on each other's nerves. Naturally, we're going to step on each other's toes. Naturally, we're going to offend each other. We're going to upset each other. We might even like hurt each other. Naturally, because we're sinners and we still got this flesh. But God says you're going to have to work at maintaining the unity of the Spirit because the Holy Spirit wants you to live at peace and you're going to have to make it a priority and a job to endeavor to keep that unity in the bond of peace. Let that peace hold you together like a bond, like a seal, like something holding your dentures in right now, right? Just keep that thing tight and sure. Now go to chapter 4, stay in chapter 4. And then he says this, and I'm not, I'm not going to read all these verses, but chapter 4, verse uh, 4 to 13, he says, Unity is the church's destination. You know, one day the body of Christ is going to be totally unified. We got brethren in Haiti that we've never met. We got friends in the Philippines that you don't know their names, but maybe some of your dollars have gone to buy tracks that got them saved. Right? There are people all around the communities, all around the world that are saved by the same blood, by the same faith, with the same Savior. And one day, praise the Lord, you're all going to be unified. And in Ephesians chapter 4, I want you to notice something. Look at verse 4. Look at verse 4. Notice that the Lord made us one. He gives you seven things in 4, 5, and 6. He says, there is one body and one spirit, even as you are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. So the Lord has already made you one. You got that? If you're saved, you're part of this one thing called the body of Christ through the one Savior and the one Holy Spirit that baptized you in the one body. So the Lord has already made you one. And then he keeps going on. Then he jumps to verse number 13. And he says in verse number 13 that here is your destination, church. We're doing all this stuff, Bible studies, prayer meetings, church, stuff you do with your family, stuff you do personally. Open up your Bible tomorrow morning. Why? Till we all come in the unity of of the faith, and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a singular perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. God made you one when you got saved, and one day God is going to make you totally built into Jesus Christ. You're going to be unified when you all become just like Jesus Christ. That's the goal of this whole thing called the church. So what does he say in the middle? Verses 8 to 12, he talks about the men he put in the church to move people on to maturity. He made you one when he saved you. He put you into that one body. He's going to make you conform to the image of Jesus Christ. You'll be unified that way. And in the interim, God puts people in the church. He gives them gifts to the church. Why? To help you on to that destination. See verse 8? He says, uh, wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive, right? That's talking about his resurrection, and gave gifts unto men. Now that he ascended, that's going up, what is it but that he also descended first, that's going down, into the lower parts of the earth, because there's two chambers out there. He that descended, went down, is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. And here's what he gave. Here are the gifts. He gave some apostles. Early church had apostles. And some prophets. Not all, but early church had prophets, right? Because there was no written revelation, so they had prophets. You read about them, men like Agabus in the book of Acts. 
and some evangelists. We're going to have, you know, we know some right now in Haiti. We know some in the Philippines. We would call them missionaries today. That office is still in effect because some people still have not heard the gospel and gotten saved. And some pastors and teachers. There's no comma between pastors and teachers because that's what a pastor primarily does. He teaches the Bible to the children of God. So they, why? Why? For the perfecting of the saints. For the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. God put these gifts into his body, these people in the body. Why? So that the body could move on to its ultimate destination, which is unity. So we can grow up into Christ, a perfect man, single, unified, one mind and one mouth glorifying God. You say, look at that threefold cord, right? He gave you three things right there, right? Go to Colossians chapter 2. He said... For the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Do you know if we could write a mission statement for our church, it would be that that verse right there? That is the goal of the church. Perfect the saints, the work of the ministry, edify the body of Christ. Let me show you a great companion verse that gives you that threefold cord again. Right? Colossians chapter 2. Watch it with me now. Colossians chapter 2. Look at verse number 6. Colossians 2, verse number 6. Right there. Right? As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord. Have you received Christ Jesus the Lord? Amen. Amen. I have. Right? Almost 24 years ago. Right? Almost 24 years ago, I trusted Jesus Christ as my personal Savior. The spring, right around this time, I think it was May 6, 1998, I got a bag on my door like Brian and some of the guys put bags on people's doors. I read it by myself alone, and the Holy Spirit just opened my eyes to it, impressed the truths upon my heart, and I called upon that Savior to be my Savior, and my life has never been the same. If you have that moment where you've called on Jesus Christ to be your Savior, you know your life has never been the same. Amen? Praise the Lord for that. He's a great God, a great Savior. He's worthy of all our love and all our devotion, and that's just the fact of it all. And right there, though, in Colossians 2, 6, 7, he says... So walk ye in him. Okay, you got saved by faith. What's the walk of faith like now? Here's the threefold cord. Rooted. That's the perfection. Right? You know, if you want to mature and be perfected, you got to get rooted. That means you got to take some things out and put some things in. Some things got to get rooted in and some things got to get rooted out if you're ever going to mature. Right? It works perfectly. Then he says, rooted and what? What's the next word he says? Rooted and built up. Built up. See, that's the work of the ministry. The work of the ministry is not to build a church. The work of the ministry is to build Christians, right? The work is to build people up, to get enough Bible in a man or a woman, a boy or a girl, that they could stand for Jesus Christ and bring him some honor and glory. That's the work of the ministry, right? And then what does he say third? He says, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, right? You get settled, you get established, you know what? This thing starts humming now. That lines up with the edifying, right? Where the body starts coming together. Things start getting established. There's your threefold cord of the work of the ministry. Now, remember unity? I said it only appears three times in your Bible. Unity only appears three times. You know what three is the number of? It's the number of the Godhead. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. You want a picture of unity? Look at God. God's got perfect unity. The Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. Now, they're literally one 
but they're also one. They're totally one. They have perfect unity. You're getting conformed to a God that has total unity among his Godhead. That's the God you worship and the God you love and the God that lives inside of you. Why do you think unity is such a big, big deal? Because you're being conformed to the image of a God and being led by a God who has perfect unity among himself. But you know what's also interesting? Unity has five letters. One, two, three, four, five. You know why? Because for unity to be achieved, somebody's got to die to themselves that the whole might live. See, five, five letters. Five is the number of death. Five wounds on Jesus Christ. The devil has five letters. Death has five letters, right? Um, five is the number of death. Five wounds on Jesus Christ. I said that, right? But look at Philippians chapter 2, please. You've got to be willing to die to yourself that the body might be blessed and the body might grow. This is the mind you're supposed to have so the devil doesn't tear your church apart and tear your life apart. Philippians chapter 2. Look at verse 1. If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels of mercies, that's just, that verse cracks me up because God's saying, like, if I've given you any of those things, right? Hasn't he given you those things, right? Hasn't he given you comfort of love? Hasn't he given you consolation? Hasn't he given you fellowship? Hasn't God had mercy on you? His insides have just been merciful towards you. Then he says, fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded. What's that mean, Paul? Having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife, (laughs) remember, brethren, or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Here's the one mind we got to get have, the mind of Christ. What did Christ do? Christ died for someone else. That's the mind we have to have that, so this thing doesn't get divided and conquered. Right? We have to think of others ahead of ourselves. Right? He says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Isn't that just an amazing Savior have right there? There's some parts of the Bible that you should be, they should be worn out. There should be like, finger stains in the margin and underlines and circles and highlights. You know what? That's one of those passages because you can't read Philippians 2 verses 1 to 8 and not get struck with how magnificent your Savior was to lower himself that you and I might be lifted up. And he says, let this mind be in you. In other words, think like Jesus Christ who was willing to die that someone else might be exalted. And when he says, you want to have unity, five letters, you've got to be willing to die that someone else might be blessed. You know what that takes? That takes a very important word in your Bible. It takes charity. Let's look at 1 Peter 4. Um, I'll either finish this or squeeze another one in, or I'll just bang on this for a little while. 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. Look at verse number 8. 
Peter said a lot of great things in First Peter, but he says this. I'm just going to jump into verse 8 for time's sake. He says, and above all things, in other words, this is mucho importante, right? He says, this is really, that's Spanish too, Pete. That's Spanish also, right? And above all things, have fervent. You know what fervent means? Zealous, passionate, like, like you're really into it. Like, you know how you were when you were sitting at that sports game a few days ago, a month ago, a week ago, and you were just cheering and screaming, like you had such passion and zeal, right, for that thing? He's saying, you should have some passion and zeal, to have charity among yourselves, for charity shall cover the multitude of sins. Brethren, charity is the only way we stay together as a church. If not, the devil will divide and conquer. He will tear it up, break it up, rip it up, and we'll have to start all over somewhere else because that's just how the devil operates. That's how he's operated from the beginning. So let's look at charity. Can we just, we'll just finish this question on this one. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. So the question was asked, how can the devil destroy a church? It's actually very simple. It's actually the way he does it all the time. Divide and conquer. Divide and conquer. And somebody, starting with me, has got to be big enough to say, the strife stops here. I'm not going to let this division go any further. I'm going to heal the breach and not drive a wedge and make it deeper. He says in verse 8 of 1 Corinthians 13, charity, you know what? Let's take it from verse 4. Let's read the whole thing about charity. Charity, what charity is, is God's love in action, right? Right? God's love, love is this way, right? We love God. If any man love God, the same is known of him. You know what charity is? Charity is this way. Amen. Charity is, I've seen God's love towards me, and that makes me reciprocate it towards somebody else. And if it's going this way good, it should come out this way, right? Amen. Right? If I can't forgive this way, it's probably because I don't understand the forgiveness that was given to me this way. If I can't have long-suffering this way, it's probably because I lost sight of the fact that the long-suffering this way is my salvation, 2 Peter 3.15. If I don't have any kindness this way, I forgot about the kindness and love of God towards me, Titus chapter 3, this way. So if you've got a problem tonight, you've probably got to get fixed this way, and then you see this way starts coming out the right way. And a charity says this in verse 4, charity suffereth long, has long-suffering. End is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself. Is not puffed up. Doth not behave itself unseemly. Respects the boundaries. Seeketh not her own. Is not easily provoked. Thinketh no evil. Rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Beareth all things. Right? Charity makes you... Bear the burdens of your brothers without giving up. Charity believeth all things. That doesn't mean that charity makes me believe the whole Bible. That's really not what that's about. That means that charity says, when brother, you say something, I'm going to take your word for it. I'm going to believe you have the best interest at heart. That's charity. That's showing charity to somebody, right? Just saying, brother, I'm going to believe you. Sister, I'm going to believe you because you're my brother. I love you. That's charity, right? If we don't have that spirit with each other, we're always looking at each other like this suspicion, you know, with that kind of evil eye, right? The Bible talks about an evil eye and that kind of suspicion. You know what it does? It puts an ice cold chill on the Holy Ghost in a church. It's just any kind of fervency, any kind of zeal, that type of like 
when we start looking at each other suspectedly of what they might really mean or think, you know what it does? It just puts the brakes on what the Holy Ghost is doing. Charity believeth all things. You say, Pat, you might get burned. That's the risk that charity takes. I can't guard myself as a Christian. I can't insulate myself as a Christian. Then I should have never made myself a part of the church. Right? Jesus Christ, what did he do? He got abandoned by his best friends. That was a risk that Jesus Christ took for the greater good. Did Jesus Christ get burned? Yeah. His miracles were not reciprocated. His kindness was vilified. His good deeds were turned against him. His witness was twisted. They called him a liar. They called him a, 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 a gluttonous man. They called him all kind, a wine-bibber. They called him all kinds of names. The sweetest man who ever lived, the kindest man who ever lived, the one who wouldn't quench smoking flax and wouldn't break a bruised reed. They did that to the Savior, and you think you've got a right to not have that done to you? I don't want it done to me any more than you want it done to you. But if this thing is going to live and grow and honor God, we've each got to take a risk to say, you know what? I might get burned, Lord. I might get stomped on. I might get my heart broken. But you know what, Lord? You're worthy. Because on the other hand, you might not. You might encourage a brother. You might heal a breach. You might strengthen a relationship. You might honor God. Charity believeth all things, hopeth all things. Not so pessimistic with each other. Not so, you know, thinking everybody's evil, thinking everybody's going to fail, thinking everybody's got the wrong motive. That's not the way to think about each other. Brethren, how do I know that? The Bible, you're reading it. God's love. You think God thinks that way about you? Lord, you know what, Lord? I'm going to, every day, Lord, January 1st, Lord, every day I'm going to read my Bible. You think God sits there and says, yeah, okay. We know how that's going to go. I'll give it to January 8th, right? You know, God doesn't do that. God says, that's good, son. I, I believe you. I hope that's what... I, God's rooting for you. You should be rooting for each other. Hopeth all things. Keep reading, keep reading. Believeth all... Endureth all things. Charity never faileth. But whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. You know, in the millennium, you get in a lot of trouble if you try prophesying, because that's going to be all over. <laughs> Even the prophets of the early church are gone. There are no prophets anymore. Right? There's no office of a prophet anymore. God said, I let that pass away now that I got the finished word of God. Prophet, they, whether there be tongues, they shall cease when the door closed on the nation of Israel. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. Because one day everybody's going to know everything about God. <laughs> right? Uh, for we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect or mature is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. When I was a child, I spake as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. You know what children are into? My part. My toy. My snack. My room. My go-go, right? My whatever it is that you got, right? My thing, my thing. My daughter used to have a doll said go-go. That's what came out of my mouth, right? My go-go, she used to say. My go-go, right? Mine. That's how kids are. We're interested. When we're immature, we're interested in our part. My walk with God. My victory. My testimony. My blessing. My peace of mind. Me, me, me. My, 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 my. I think the Christians sometimes are tuning up for choir practice with all the me, 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 my, my, my that they say, right? But when you become a man, and you start to see the bigger picture, the perfect, the mature, then your part isn't the biggest deal anymore. Right? 
Now watch verse 12. For now we see through a glass darkly. But then, what's the then? See, everybody reads this. Is this about the King James Bible? Is this about when we get to heaven? No. What's the then? The then is when you become a man. When you start to realize that there's something bigger than you. You know what? You get up at 5 a.m. in the morning, guys, and go to work. You know what? You man up because you got wives and wives. Wives. Yeah, that's the truth from the earth, right? <laughs> because you've got wives. The English teacher, my poor p- pluralization, have pity on me. All right? You've got a wife. Hopefully <laughs> you don't have more than one. Right? You've got a wife. You've got children that make you say, you know what? I've got to do something bigger than myself. I like to stay in bed at 5 a.m., 4.45 a.m., right, and just roll over and snooze and tell my kids to go out and earn the day's pay. No, but you get up when you become a man, you put away childish things, right? Keep reading. So for now, we see through a glass dark. You know, when you, you, when you look at this Bible, you know who you're always looking about? Yourself. Thinking about you, right? It's all about you now. My walk. And that's not the worst thing in the world. But when you start to become a man, when you start to see what's bigger to yourself, then face to face, then I start thinking about you and you start thinking about me. Right? I know there's other applications to that verse. But in the context, it's about how you get above yourself and you start looking at others. And others start looking at you. And you start to see the big picture called us that makes you start doing things for God's glory and the brethren's benefit, even if sometimes you've got to swallow it, suck it up, and bury it. Because sometimes you've got to do that, right? Keep reading, keep reading, right? But then face to face. Now I know in part, I know about me, 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 my, my, my. But then when I become a man, shall I know even as also I am known. I'm thinking about you and you're thinking about me. And we're really, now, we're really a mature church. When we're thinking about others above ourselves. When we're not letting the devil divide and conquer because we're so locked in arms and heart that the devil got no room to get between us. That's when we become mature. That's when we've arrived. Oh, we can write a doctrinal chart and talk about salvation and the tribulation and the millennium and what's going on over there. That's exciting. But that's still thick milk. Meat is when you can digest that somebody else is more important than you for the glory of God. That's some stuff to chew on. That's some chewy stuff for you to digest. And there ain't too many brethren, starting with me, that's arrived at that. Because that's where the rubber meets the road. And now abideth faith, hope, charity, these three. But the greatest of these is charity. You see, charity sees the bigger picture and sacrifices your part for the whole the perfect, the mature. And as I was thinking about this, I was thinking about parallels in the human body. And I found a few things that were interesting. I even consulted with my nerd friends on these. You know, in the human body, if you have a body, say amen, right? You do. Okay, good. Just making sure I'm not talking to any specters here. All right. Um, You know, every seven years, interesting, every seven years, Certain cells in your body are designed to die so the organism can thrive. It's called programmed cell death, right? Your body has got programmed that certain cells have to die so the whole body can continue to thrive and grow and prosper. But do you know what cells don't do that? Oh, it's so interesting. It hit home for me. You know what cells evade programmed cell death? They just like to consume nutrients. 
They just, they don't repair themselves. You know what cells those are? Cancer cells. Cancer cells don't die until the organism is dead. Cancer cells just absorb nutrients. Cancer cells evade the process of repairing. Cancer cells don't like to fix themselves. They evade those things. They have limited repair mechanisms. You know what they do? They will consume and consume and divide and divide and divide until the organism is dead. The healthy cell, some of them will die so the whole can live. The unhealthy cell, the cancer cell, will continue to divide until the organism is no longer existing. So you and I have to soberly consider, are you willing to die for the unity of God's church? Are you going to keep dividing until the body is dead? Are you going to be a healthy cell or a cancer cell in the body of Christ? You have a choice to be one of those two things. And uh, I'm going to give you one more quick one. Can I give you one more quick one? I'm going to do a half of this one. This is a good question. I'm gonna, that good? That was a lot for you to digest, but I wanna, I'm going to give you this one just to kind of go home on a, maybe more of a positive note. All right? uh, the question was asked, will we recognize each other after death? Whether it's heaven, the resurrection, will we recognize each other after this life? And it's kind of a two-part question, and I'll try to just do the first part, maybe get to the second part a little bit next week or whenever. But the answer is, yeah. <laughs> the answer is, yeah. The relationship won't be the same, but the answer to me from the Scriptures is pretty, yeah. So let's look at, and I don't understand all of it, but I, I think it's clear that we will recognize each other in some form. Let's go to, let's start right where we are. All right, 1 Corinthians 13, 12. Here's the implication, right? If we, if we just take this verse in 12 and say, For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know, even as also I am known. This verse is a pretty strong implication that when this thing hits its full maturity, you're going to know the way you're known. The way God knows you is the way you're going to know things. Doesn't God know everybody in the family of God? You're going to know even as you're known. Now, that doesn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't park on that verse only, but that's a pretty strong implication that you're going to know each other because God knows all of you. You know what, the book of Ephesians, let's turn to Ephesians chapter 3, Ephesians chapter 3. Some of these we'll turn to, some of these I'll just write down. And this could be, I'm just going to hit you with about five or six stops here. We'll go very fast. We won't even look at all of them, but I'll write them all up here. Uh, Ephesians chapter 3, you know the body of Christ is described as a family? Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14 and 15. Look at this, says in Ephesians 3, 14 and 15. The Bible says, For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. Amen. There's some family of God in heaven. Some of you got the names flashing across your mind right now. Some of them, we're looking at them on earth, but there's still one family. Doesn't the family know each other? What kind of family doesn't know each other? Just food for thought, just, just a consideration. You say, well, is that, only, is, that only for the, is that only for the saved then? Well, what about Luke chapter 16? I'm not going to look at all those verses. But about that rich man? That rich man didn't go to heaven. How'd that rich man? You look at, look at verses 32 and 33. How'd that rich man know Abraham? How'd that rich man know Lazarus? 
He knew them by name, right? He knew about his brothers, right? That rich man was dead. He wasn't in heaven. He wasn't in the body of Christ. He wasn't a Christian, but he recognized some people. He recognized Abraham, recognized Lazarus. They were together in life, and there they are, separated by that great gulf in death. But he recognized them. Mm-hmm. Right? How about Matthew chapter 17? How about this one? Look at that one. I'm not going to read all these verses again. I'm just doing a skim coat right now. Maybe next week, if you want, I'll go in a little deeper. Matthew chapter 17. Peter, look at verses, uh, I think it's like 3 and 4. It's the transfiguration, right? Jesus Christ gets caught up on that mount. Gets, I mean, gets taken up on that mount, gets transfigured before them. How did Peter recognize Moses and Elijah? You ever think about that? No Instagram. No Snap. Right? No Facebook profile. Nothing underneath them. He didn't scroll over. Oh, that's Moses, right? No, no. He saw me. He said, that's Moses. That's Elijah. Now, for a lot of reasons, he knew, probably because he knew they were accompanying the Lord when he would return, but he recognized Moses and Elijah. How about this one? How about 1 Corinthians chapter 15? I'm just writing these up here. You can flip there. 20. Let's look at first. I'll look at this one with you too. 1 Corinthians 15. Let's go verse 6. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 6. Speaking of Jesus Christ. After that, he was seen of above 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. 500 witnesses recognize there is in Christ. That's interesting. 500 witnesses. And the Bible says you're going to have a body like his body. Philippians 3. Bible says in 1 John, we're going to be like him. They were able to recognize Christ. You think they'll be able to recognize you? Just food for thought, food for thought. How about one more? How about one more? Uh, how about two more? Hey, three more. How about 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 19, and then 2 Corinthians 1, verse 14? Let's look at 1 Corinthians Thessalonians 2, 19 first. All right, 1 Thessalonians 2.19, Paul's speaking about the judgment seat of Christ. He's clearly not talking about something on earth. He's talking about when he's going to see these believers that he'd only seen for three weeks. 1 Thessalonians 2.19, he'd only been with these folks for three weeks. But he says, when we get to heaven, we're going to be rejoicing together. 1 Thessalonians 2.19, he says, For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing, or not even ye, that's all of you Thessalonians, in the church, in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at His coming? He says, I'm going to see you, and you're going to see me, and we're going to rejoice. How are they going to know each other if nobody recognizes each other after this life? They're going to get to that thing, and they're going to say, I saw you, you see me. There's a time to have thanks. Right? Look at 2 Corinthians, a similar thought. 2 Corinthians 1. I don't, I'm not saying all the details of it. I'll get to next week how the relationship is probably very different, but there's still the knowledge. 2 Corinthians 1, verse 14, he says it again. 2 Corinthians 1, 14. As also ye have acknowledged us in part that we are your rejoicing, even as ye also are ours in the day of of the Lord Jesus. He says, in that day, you're going to rejoice over the people you got to Christ the way they're going to rejoice to see you. That's what he says in 1 Thessalonians. That's what he says in 2 Corinthians. So there's some kind of knowledge. There's some kind of recognition going on. And it's happening with the saved over here. It's happening with the lost over here. There's some kind of knowledge. Now let's go to 1 Thessalonians. I got seven, seven verses. I'm on six. See how fast I'm going? 1 Thessalonians 4. 
verse 13 to 18. I'm not going to read. This is a great famous passage. This is another place in your Bible that should be highlighted. There should be tear stains. You should have little thumb stains. The oil of your hand should be thinning your page out because you should have turned to this so many times. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13. Do you know why he even gives us this little passage here about the rapture? Because the brethren were dying. Because brethren were dying. And they're going, where are these people? Are we going to see them again? He says in verse 13, But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, meaning those are the ones that have died, that have been saved and died, that ye sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. And then he gives these glorious verses about that resurrection morning when the brethren will all rise. The ones you're crying over now, Thessalonians, the one you might be worried about if you'll ever see them again, Thessalonians, I'm telling you, we are coming up. See, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we... He's not French. We, we, we means all of us. We which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep, the ones that are dead. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord because of this. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Where is the comfort if you have no idea who's who? You guys, I mean, you got family up there. I got family up there. Where is the comfort if you're going to be like this? Just a bunch of mindless things looking at each other like, do I know you? Do you know? How could you rejoice? How could you have joy? How could there be any comfort if not but the fact that we're going to see each other again and know each other when we see each other again? Last verse, 2 Samuel chapter 12. Hold on to that word comfort, right? There's comfort in that resurrection, because you're going to see those people again. That's the whole context. Brethren, don't sorrow as others that have no hope. Guess what? Your lost friend puts that person in the box. They don't know if they're ever seeing him again. But it says right here in 1 Thessalonians, oh no, 2 Samuel, I take you to 12, 24. This is the famous passage, right, where David loses his baby. Right, 2 Samuel 12, 24. I just want you to notice this. I'm not going to go to the verse you might be thinking I'm going to. 2 Samuel, he says in verse 23, But now he is dead. Wherefore should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. And David comforted, 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 comforted Bathsheba, his wife, and went in unto her and lay with her, and she bare a son, and he called his name Solomon, and the Lord loved him. Notice the same word. God says, he's telling him, we're going to go see him again. That's a comfort. Like the talk of the body of Christ coming up again is a comfort. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Will we recognize each other after death? It sure looks that way. And maybe next time, if you want me to, we'll go into what is that relationship maybe going to be a little bit like. It's not the same as now. It's not like, you know, the Zayas family over here and, you know, the Adlers over here. It's going to be, no, it's not going to be that way. It's going to be a lot bigger than that. You're going to be part of something a lot bigger than that. But there's still going to be some kind of recognition. 
You can't, can't throw all those verses out. So let's have a word of prayer, and that's, I think that's enough for tonight. But thank you for being here, folks, and uh, Lord willing, we'll see you again soon.